story about a hunter who was arrested for violating the Endangered Species Act. He pled guilty and was thrown in prison, and, and uh, he uh, appeared before the judge at one point. See, he had killed a bald eagle and ate it. And so that was very um, punishable, for lack of a better term. And as he appeared before the judge, he said, Your Honor, I had no idea that it was illegal to kill and eat a bald eagle. And if you let me go, I'll never do it again. And the judge said, Well, you've committed a really serious crime. But you clearly weren't aware of the law, so I'm going to overlook it this one time. However, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to do one thing for me. And the hunter replied, what, what, Your Honor? I'll do anything. The judge says, it's been illegal to kill a protected species for many years, so very few people have ever eaten a bald eagle. Can you tell me what a bald eagle tastes like? And the hunter thought about it for a moment, and then he said, it tastes pretty good. It's kind of like a cross between a spotted owl and a condor. <laughs> the point of the story is that Sometimes you're guilty because you've done something wrong. But then there are other times where you're guilty by association. You've heard that terminology before, guilty by association. When we say that you're guilty by association, we're, we're saying that you're guilty not because you've specifically done something wrong, but because the people you associate with have done something wrong, and that judgment gets cast on you. It can be unfair to be deemed guilty by association, but it also should be a valuable lesson to us about who we associate with. And what I find fascinating as we continue our study of Acts is that we come to chapter 4, and in Acts chapter 4 we encounter a guilty by association situation, but not the kind that we're used to. This isn't an instance in which the guilt by association is a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And here's a summary of what's happening at the outset of Acts chapter 4. You've got Peter and John who have just completed the healing of that lame man in chapter 3 that we studied last week. And they have the attention of the entire city of Jerusalem. It's buzzing because this man who had been lame since birth and is now 40 years old has the ability to walk. And so the city is mesmerized and it presents this opportunity for Peter and John to preach the gospel, which they do. But it catches the attention of their opposition. And so they're arrested by the Jewish leaders and brought in for questioning. And for most of the chapter, you have Peter and John defending themselves before the religious elite of Judaism. And it's their response to these religious leaders, excuse me, and it is their response to these religious leaders' questions that produces one of the most well-known passages in this book, verse 12, which says, And there is salvation in no one else, but there, 
excuse me, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But honestly, as valuable and beautiful and important as that verse is, I don't think it's the most important verse of this chapter. I think the most important verse of Acts chapter 4 is the very next verse, verse 13. Because I can't read past it without challenging myself. Look at what Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 says. Now when they, a reference to the religious leaders who were doing the questioning, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And here's the important part. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, I can't read past this verse without asking myself, do people recognize that I've been with Jesus? Do people recognize my association with Christ? That is a sobering question if you really think about it. You know, we conduct spiritual examinations from time to time, or at least I hope you conduct a spiritual self-examination from time to time. It's something we need to do. We need to consider whether or not we are in the faith. We need to consider whether or not we're living up to the call. We need to consider whether or not we are in a safe state. But when we do spiritual self-examinations, we have a tendency to ask questions like, do I go to worship services? Do I give of my means? Do I read my Bible? Do I pray regularly? Do I serve in some capacity? Do I use bad language? Do I get drunk? Do, do I engage in sexual sin? We ask ourselves those questions and we check our boxes and, and, and we feel good about ourselves because we've met those bare minimum requirements. But when we ask those kind of questions, what we're really doing is we're operating like the rich young ruler. We're checking to make sure we've, we've done the least amount that we have to do. But if we stop to ask the question, do people recognize that I've been with Jesus? We're asking a deeper, richer more complex question about our faith. We're asking whether or not the world knows that we're a disciple. We're, we're asking whether or not our relationship with Christ is on display for people to see. And for many of us, that's a question we really don't want to ask. And so what I want to do this morning is take note of some characteristics that Peter and John demonstrated that contributed to their guilt by association that contributed to those religious leaders saying hey these guys have been with jesus and i want you to consider this morning even though the the three characteristics i'm going to highlight are not all that you need to consider in regards to your relationship with christ i want you to examine yourself and consider hey as i go out into the world this afternoon or tomorrow will people be able to look at me and go hey He's with Jesus. Can they see your relationship with Christ? 
And as I look at the story of Peter and John here, there are three things that stand out to me that I want us to consider this morning. And it has to do with how one's association with Christ is evidenced. And the first thing I notice is that association with Christ is evidenced by humility. Look again at this text, particularly verse 13. Notice that one of the things that stood out to the religious leaders about Peter and John was the fact that they were uneducated, common men. In other words, those religious leaders knew that Peter and John received no formal training, held no formal positions, and for all intents and purposes were nobodies. The Greek word translated common, I find this hilarious. The Greek word translated common here is idiotes. Idiotes. Can you come up with an English word that goes with that? I'm not saying it because I'm afraid there are some families who don't want their children to use that word. But that's what was thought of these two guys because they're uneducated. Because they're blue-collar. Because they're not holding any significant position in their society. And yet these uneducated, common men were able to perform a healing miracle and go toe-to-toe in a theological debate with the religious leaders. But here's what I love about Peter and John. They're capable because of the Holy Spirit, to do something that the religious elite couldn't do when they healed that lame man. And despite their lack of formal education, they are more theologically adept than the religious leaders were. But despite those things, they didn't flaunt their supremacy. And they were still identifiable as uneducated common men. And that fact is an indicator that they retained their humility even as their popularity grew. And you compare Peter and John to their questioners here. Those who brought them in for questioning are identified in Acts chapter 4 and verse 5 as the rulers and elders and scribes. Reference to those three groups indicates that this was most likely the Sanhedrin. You've probably heard that term Sanhedrin thrown around on occasion. The Sanhedrin, which was sometimes simply referred to as the council, it was essentially the supreme court of Jewish religion. The Sanhedrin decided whether or not the law was broken by an individual. The Sanhedrin decided what sentence those found guilty of breaking the law should receive. It was a judicial system for Mosaic law. And members of the Sanhedrin came from three different groups. First, they came from the chief priests, identified here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 5 as the rulers. The chief priests were made up of those of the acting high priest, former high priest, and members of the high priestly family. When we refer to the chief priests, ultimately we're referring to a priestly aristocracy. That's one part that made up the Sanhedrin. Another group that comprised the Sanhedrin were the elders. That consisted of the tribal and family leaders who formed the secular nobility of the Jews. 
So you've got the priestly aristocracy, you've got the secular nobility, and the third group you have here are the scribes. The scribes were the ones whose occupation it was to study and interpret the law. Sometimes they're referred to as teachers of the law. Sometimes they're even just referred to as lawyers. It's not the same as our lawyers today. These guys were the experts in Mosaic law. So the third group that made up this thing called the Sanhedrin were legal experts. You've got priestly aristocracy, you've got secular nobility, and you've got legal experts. That's a group that stands in stark contrast to uneducated common men. And the point is that this is a group that thinks they've got spiritual matters all figured out. This is a group that doesn't think they have anything to learn. This is a group that lacks humility. Do you know how I know that? Look back, or look ahead, I should say, at Acts chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. This is the discussion that the Sanhedrin had after they dismissed Peter and John from their presence. They said to themselves, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Let me break that down for you. The Sanhedrin admitted that these uneducated common men had performed a notable sign. But they didn't want to accept that it was from God. So instead of allowing the undeniable miracle to change their hearts and their minds, they tried to downplay what happened and control the flow of information from it so that nobody else would find out about it. Such a presence of closed-mindedness and a desire for control demonstrates a lack of humility. And Scripture clearly teaches that humility is a non-negotiable for disciples. Peter would later write these words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. He would say, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. That's the same guy who's uneducated, common in Acts chapter 4. And he's writing these instructions about putting on humility. And there's three basic things we learn about humility from Peter's words. We learn that humility is a choice. It's something you put on. It's something that you dress yourself in. It's not something you inherently possess. So you have to choose to put on humility. We also learn that humility will be rewarded. Because Paul instructed his readers to humble yourselves so that at the proper time, God may exalt you. And the implication is that your eternal reward is contingent on your present humility. And the other thing we learn from Peter's words on humility is that failure to be humble now will result in opposition from God later. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What Peter is ultimately saying is that humility is essential because it affects how God looks at you. And so Peter and John, in their humility here, have it evidenced by their refusal to make much about their spirit-empowered ability or their spirit-inspired intellect. 
And their humility here was undeniable evidence that they had been with Jesus, the very one who humbled himself by emptying himself and taking the form of a servant, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. So is your humility evident? Is your humility visible? Is your humility an indicator to the world that you are of Christ? Do you wear that name Christian and reflect it in the way that you live? Is your association with Christ evidenced by your humility? While humility is an important trait, it's not the only trait that these two men demonstrated their association with Christ through. Because association with Christ is also evidenced by boldness. In fact, Peter and John's most noticeable attribute here was their boldness. Some translations say confidence, some translations say courage. The idea here is their willingness and ability to stand up for something unafraid of the consequences it might bring. They're willing to be bold here in a way that most would not. Remember their audience at this moment. Their audience are the legal experts, the priestly aristocracy, and the secular nobility. Their audience are the people who matter most in their society. And their audience is also comprised of the very people that put Jesus on a cross. So these men have the capability of raining down horrible consequences if they don't like what you have to say. And yet Peter and John are recognized by these men as bold. How were they bold? They were bold because they were willing to proclaim uncomfortable, unpopular, unconventional truths. In particular, they spoke the truth regarding culpability. What I mean by that is that they were willing to call sin, sin. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 8 and through 10. This is what Peter and John proclaimed to that group of elite individuals. They said, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. They're standing before these guys who can sentence them to some sort of punishment, and they're pointing the finger at them saying, you're culpable for what happened to Jesus Christ. You're the ones who brought about his crucifixion. They boldly proclaimed that the men by whom they were being questioned were guilty of orchestrating the death of Jesus Christ. They are in effect calling these guys murderers, and that's bold. Sometimes it takes extraordinary courage to call out sin. Because cultural acceptability, political correctness, and personal protection can hinder us from being so bold on that subject. But Peter and John weren't concerned with such things. 
And as a result, they weren't afraid to call out the sin of these powerful men. Boldness is a demonstration of your relationship with Christ. And oftentimes, we are far too cowardly on the subject of sin. And we cater to what we feel is, what what our society tells us is politically correct and what is socially acceptable. But if we're going to be a follower of Christ, we've got to be able to call sin, sin. We can't be afraid to identify what Scripture says is going to bring about the wrath of God. We have to be bold enough, like Peter and John, to call out sin. But we also have to be bold like them and speak the truth regarding exclusivity. Look at what they said in verse 11 and 12 of Acts chapter 4. Speaking of Jesus, they said, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Savior. Not a Savior, the Savior. They are in effect saying that all other religions are wrong and all other messianic figures are frauds. It takes extraordinary courage to make such an exclusive claim. Because religious pluralism demands religious tolerance and religious compromise. But Peter and John weren't compromising and they weren't tolerating here. They were willing to boldly speak the truth regardless of whether or not it was acceptable. And you and I have to be willing to do that too. We live in a world that wants to say truth is relative. That wants to say that all religions are okay. We live in a world that is pluralistic. But there's salvation in no one else. That's monotheistic. There's only one Savior, and we've got to be willing to communicate that message. Peter and John were bold simply because they were willing to say things that nobody else was willing to say. As one commentator pointed out, there is no attempt by them to seek favor or to take a poll about how popular what they said would be. And their willingness, their willingness to be bold was undeniable evidence that they had been with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who boldly proclaimed culpability when he said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus is the one who boldly proclaimed exclusivity when he identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life and said, no one comes to the Father except through me. We have to be willing, if we're going to be associated with Christ, to say those bold things too. And that boldness on the part of Peter and John here in front of an audience that was certainly not okay with what they had to say was evidence that they had been with Christ. Is that evidence present in your life? Have you been willing to call sin, sin, or have you been more tolerant because it's someone close to you? 
because it's a family member or a friend, and so you tolerate that sin instead of call it out? Have you been afraid to proclaim Christ as the way to salvation because the ramifications may come out in your life that you don't want to deal with? Because it's not socially acceptable and because it's not politically correct. Are you willing to be bold like the, the Son of God was and like Peter and John were here because that is evidence of your association with Him? And finally, I don't know what just happened. If we can go back to the third, there we go. Association with Christ is also evidenced by obedience. I want you to look at how this whole episode in Acts chapter 4 concluded. Drop down to verse 18. The Sanhedrin summons Peter and John back into their chambers, and we're told in verse 18 that they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. If you skipped ahead to verse 21, you would find out that the Sanhedrin even went so far as to threaten them. And so the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John to stop talking about Jesus and went so far as to try and intimidate them into obeying. And this whole scene exposed the true motivation of those religious leaders. Because their biggest concern was with maintaining the status quo. Go back to verse 2 of Acts chapter 4. We're told that the Sanhedrin was greatly annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In other words, the Sanhedrin viewed itself as the ultimate authority on religious matters. So it greatly offended them that somebody else was infringing on their territory. And the church was definitely infringing because if you look at verse 4 of Acts 4, we find out that many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. What started with approximately 120 people back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 15 by Acts chapter 4 and verse 4 had grown 40 times in number. That was unacceptable to the Sanhedrin because it, the church, was undermining their authority. And you can see, really see the concern for authority if you look at verse 7 of Acts chapter 4. Because the initial question the Sanhedrin asked Peter and John was, by what power or by what name did you do this miracle? What they want to know is who authorized their actions as well as their teaching. Because they didn't authorize it. Because the religious leaders didn't give the okay for Peter and John to go out and heal that lame man. And they didn't give the okay for them to talk, start talking about Jesus. Again, they see themselves as the ultimate authority on the Jewish faith. And they don't want anyone undermining that authority. They don't want to lose their power, their control, their authority. So their chief concern all throughout this whole episode is to maintain status quo. Here's the problem with a status quo mentality. When you're unwilling to learn, unwilling to grow, 
unwilling to improve or change, then you're likely trying to protect your disobedience. Think about it. The reason we want the status quo to remain in our lives is typically because we don't want to confront that sin in our lives. Or we don't want to take on that responsibility. Or we don't want to face our guilt, or we don't want to give something up, or we don't want to make a change that will cause maturation. Status quo living is life that doesn't want to surrender to the will of God because they find that just too difficult. Meanwhile, you've got Peter and John here. Look at verse 19 and 20. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Do you understand what they're saying here? They're blatantly saying, we're not going to stop talking about Jesus because our responsibility is to obey. And what you're asking us to do is in direct opposition to the will of God. See, the, under, the apostles understood that obedience is more important than convenience. They understood that their obedient response to the will of God takes precedence over anything of convenience in their own life. And so they're willing to put their lives on the line to speak about Jesus. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but you skip ahead into chapter 5 and you find out they get imprisoned. They get beaten. They get threatened with worse if, if they continue to speak in the name of Jesus. Obedience must take precedence over convenience. Do you know why? Because obedience delights God. Do you remember what Samuel said to King Saul after confronting him on his blatant disobedience in regards to the Amalekites? Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. But not only is obedience a delight to God, obedience also deflects punishment. Do you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus when it was pointed out that Jesus was baptizing more people and gaining more followers than him? You can see it over in John chapter 3 and verse 36. And there John the Baptist said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you want to avoid the wrath of God, if you want to see life, then you've got to obey. Not only does obedience delight God and deflect punishment, but there's a third thing it does. It demonstrates love. Do you remember what Jesus said immediately before promising to send the Holy Spirit? John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I didn't use the word obey. 
but the concept's there. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll obey. See, Peter and John were willing to obey God even in a situation that would have been easy to disobey. And they demonstrate for us that obedience is a non-negotiable for disciples. And that's why their intentional decision to obey God rather than some human authority when it was impossible to obey both served as undeniable evidence that they had been with Jesus. The one who had been obedient to the point of death, according to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. You see, when we look at Acts chapter 4 and we look at the characteristics that are highlighted in regards to Peter and John, we see them modeling what they saw in Jesus and following what Jesus taught them. And in so doing, they're recognizable as people who are associated with him. This morning... Our challenge is to be guilty by association when it comes to our relationship with Christ. And since we've been using some legal terminology, I want to conclude with one final question for you to carry with you, for you to ponder, meditate on, and for you to challenge yourself with in the days to come. If you were put on trial for being a Christian. If you were put on trial for having a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you were put on trial for being a disciple, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I hope so. Today, if in looking at the life of Peter and John in this moment and seeing how they were recognized as being with Jesus, if that causes you to realize that there may not be enough evidence in your life to convict you of the same, if that causes you to realize that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ because you've never obeyed his instructions regarding the gospel, to confess that he is the risen son, of God to repent of your sins and to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you haven't done that, now is the opportunity. We offer the invitation every week so that we can all be right with God and so that we can all ensure that our salvation is secure. If you need to respond to the invitation today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Mark the name.